A Christian college fires two employees for putting pronouns in their bio. We'll talk about that. But first, a one Middle Eastern country has a very practical good example for us to follow. We'll start there on this week's Corey Truax Show. We'll do those two things, but of course also primary season's popping up. There is at least some Christian worldview implications to talk about there. Uh, what else did I see that I wanted to talk about? I will figure it out as we go. Oh, yeah, New York Times article telling you where you can practice polyamory more easily. I want to talk about that some as well. There's a lot to do. We'll do all that and more on this week's Corey Act show. Wherever you find podcasts, thanks for listening. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching. Starting soon, if the Lord wills, I'm almost positive I will start in July a series in the book of Rome. Nope, sorry, Hebrews. It'll be the first time I've tried to teach an epistle. For you Bible teachers out there, they're you know solid ones. If you want to send me any tips, that's always appreciated. I love a I love telling a Bible story, man. Setting, dialogue, customs, trying to bring people's imaginations to life. That's where I thrive. And then epistles are like speeches. They're like preaching on someone else's sermon. They're hard, man. I'm glad I'm, I've waited until I was. 37 to try my first epistle. We'll see if I'm mature enough to do it in a way that is formational and effective. And I say all that to say if you don't have a church home, you're invited any given Sunday morning to Beachwood Church. We'd love to have you. For all my church leadership listeners, it's a good chunk of the po- of the population who gathers here are people who do things in the church world. Can I just encourage you? The next 12, 13 Sundays, one quarter of your people will be out. It's vacation season. I used to let that discourage me. I don't anymore. Just recognize what it is. People get to enjoy times with their family. That's good. It's good that people enjoy their family. It's not good if they just forget all spiritual things while they're on vacation. That might be some content I want to do this summer. That uh, Someone said it this way recently. Christianity is the operating system. It's not an app. It's, it's not to, when you look at your phone... You go from Facebook to Instagram to Twitter. You go from YouTube to Vimeo. You go from your Capital One account to your, I don't know what other bank you have. But you're always opening one app at a time, and the operating system is in the background running it. Christianity is an operating system. When you hit your work app or your vacation app or your hobbies app or your marriage app or your parenting app, those are the apps. Christianity is the thing. Bibl- Biblicism, being a Bible person, is, in, is the thing in the background that should be running everything. For a lot of American Christians, I think, they have an actual Bible app or Christianity app. And their operating system is their own feelings, their own philosophies. And then they run their Christianity through their operating system. And then they run their marriage through their operating system. But their, their marriage and their vacation and their, their work is not affected by the other app over there because that app's not open right now. I think I did just cover it, so... Well, probably won't do that during the summer. During the summer, but I'm saying it's vacation season. People want to not be around, and they should be discipled well to know. Even when you vacation, you vacation Christianly. Anyway, all right, I got to do what I'm supposed to do. Here we go. I have come to this conclusion in my end times theology. We call that eschatology. That things can get better. That the affairs of humanity can improve and I specifically mean their spiritual state, that the church can be effective, that evangelism can happen, and the church can grow in this country, in the West, worldwide, 
those things can happen. That King Jesus is ruling and reigning. But I will admit, that sounds very pie in the sky. Sounds totally impractical. I think those of us who are post-mill and talk about, but post-millennial, we, we talk about how things can be Christian. I think we even the way we talk about it, we got to be careful. Some, some of that language sounds insane and radical. I find myself in my own head thinking things that I know. If I said that out loud to just an average group of people, I would sound like a nut job. Sound like a, a person that, like you... Sound like a person you would not want to associate with because it sounds so insane, and only because our minds have been so affected by worldliness. But that's the case. Our minds have been affected by worldliness. Like we, we should be careful about how we communicate because we want to communicate effectively and truthfully, not just truthfully. But anyway, I know it sounds all pie in the sky when you say, say things like, "Yes, I want a world where it's so Christian that the art, the movies, the TV shows, the the music." becomes Christian because there's just not a market for filth. There's not a market for this type of entertainment. There's, our people are thinking too Christianly, and so the, the art and the movies and the TV and the, the music just starts being, that they seek out Christians to run it because they, need, they want the right customers. And so Netflix and Paramount and Fox Entertainment, and they all get run by Christians. That there's just no demand for secular insanity, and so Boards of trustees are seeking out Christians to run Harvard and Princeton, and the Cal- you know what in the California New York university systems, the public university systems. Yeah, I I want to get there. And here's the thing: I know that sounds crazy, and I think we can. I think it's being modeled right now in of all places. Ironically, it's ironic because my eschatology is not obsessed with the with the country of Israel, the state of Israel, and the people my opposite are obsessed with Israel. But in one setting, Israel is being a model of what I'm talking about right now. Let me read to you the headline from The Conversation. It's an academic journal, leans left. Here's the headline. Israel's new hardline government has made headlines. The, big, the bigger demographic changes that caused it, not so much. If you don't know what's happening in Israel right now, it is a gigantic sea change. It, it's government has been moving ever rightward and more traditional and more conservative. That's how we would think about it. In a country that actually has largely been secular, Israel, it's, Israel's religious demographics have been disproportionately atheistic. By disproportionate, I mean in relation to its physical neighbors and its ideological neighbors, which I would consider more Western countries. Let me just read to you the first four paragraphs of this story. This is what I'm talking about. Like When you imagine the world that I want, how do we get there? Israel right now is actually a model. First four paragraphs. Israel's new government is the most right-wing and religious leadership the country has had in all of its 75 years of existence, as many observers have pointed out. And this style of leadership may last because it represents the next generation of Israelis. Huh. I wonder how that happened. I wonder how the next generation wanted a more traditional and conservative government and elected one. Well, paragraph two. You don't have to look far to see that the religiously observant Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox sectors of Israel's population are growing quickly. Even right now, the new minister of Jerusalem affairs has 12 children. The minister of national missions is one of the few women in the cabinet. She has 11 children. 
The housing minister has 10. The interior minister has 9. The finance minister and minister of immigration have 7. And the minister of heritage has 6. Paragraph 3. The rapid growth of Israel's ultra-Orthodox population has profound consequences for the rest of society, especially Israel's delicate status quo between religion and secularism. Moreover, ultra-Orthodox voters and politicians are increasingly allied with parties from another religious demographic whose influence is growing. That's Orthodox nationalists. Final paragraph I want to share with you. As a professor of Israel studies, I would argue that Israel's future may look less like the cosmopolitan secular Tel Aviv than the nearby ultra-Orthodox city of B'nai Brak, or one of the satellite towns outside, outside Jerusalem that are the centers of Orthodox nationalism. To quote... This, I'm, I'm finished with the story. To quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. What'd they do? Like, this, this person in the article is bemoaning the fact that a Orthodox, religious, they're calling it right-wing, government is in control of a, of a country that was very recently a very secular country and is getting the reforms that it wants. By the way, because of that, I think we're, we're about to see Israel flourish. The flourishing of humanity will do better there. i got to hold on that point for a second. So in, let's go in sequence. They're going to have that kind of governance. I don't, I don't think it's going to stop at governance. It's culture, it's educational institutions, it's finance institutions, it's entertainment infrastructure. All of that will follow because the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox have had more kids than them, but really, really important. They had the kids and they disciple them. What this is now is two generations, Israel 75 years old, is two generations of people having a lot of kids, but not losing them. Talked about this a ton. We, we the Christians, we did win the demographic war. We had more kids. People not like us aborted their kids or did not have them. And it's, it's actually more often, they just didn't have them. They had one designer kid, and the Christian family down the road had four. This is the way. We have children, and then the key, we actually disciple them. We hold them to high standards. We enforce those standards. We love our kids, and we know, you know what's best for our kids? To follow Jesus. It's going to be the best thing for them and for their society as they go forward for stability. We want kids who love Jesus, so we disciple them, which means we are discipled. We take church seriously. We take home discipleship seriously. We don't act like the pastor and the youth pastor are the outsourced job of having kids be like Jesus. Moms and dads take it upon themselves to, to, to learn, to be interested in biblical things so they can teach their kid. We have the kids, and then we disciple the kids. And some of you say, well, I can't have kids. We foster the kids, and we disciple those kids. You say, I can't, I can't have kids. We adopt kids, and we disciple them. I'm using that word. I know some secular person listening to this would go, you mean indoctrination. Yeah, like you do. Let's, let's all stop pretending that kids aren't all, all of us have been indoctrinated. To indoctrinate, to teach my values. To teach my values to my kids. Yeah, the same way that you want to. The same way you want to take my kids out of my house, put them in your place, and then teach them your secular values. You teach them that all sex relationships are morally equal. I don't think that. 
I think you're morally backward for that. And no, I don't want my kids thinking that. I don't, there's a, a lot of things, I think you would teach them racial essentialism, that you are your category. You're, you are your race first before you're you. You are your gender first or your sex first before you're you. I don't, I don't want them thinking that. You, you would indoctrinate them in your way. So yeah, I say disciple, outsiders would say indoctrinate, but how do we get where Israel's gotten? We have, we foster, we adopt children, and we teach them biblical things. That's what we do. What would happen here if we did that for two generations? Just the people who fill up churches actually did foster, did foster and adopt and have kids, taught the kids Christian things, and then mom and dad, very important, lived in alignment with what you teach. I think it's, a, it's intellectually lazy, but that's, that is one of the stories people who deconstruct and fall away from the faith say. Their parents or their authorities around them, they taught one thing and acted another way. It's, it is for us to live Christianly, let our kids watch us live Christianly. Now, I, I just know, I saw that story from Israel and I thought, that's exactly what we need. But the, our problem is, our minds have been conditioned for quick resolution. You know, we want plot lines built and resolved in 22 minutes for a sitcom, 44 minutes for a one-hour show, two hours for a movie. We are a country and a culture built on convenience and ease. We barely plan next year, much less do a good job of planning where our families are going to be five years and 10 years and 15 years down the road. And to actually think generationally, we just can't fit that in our brain, that we would think about our country, think about the church a thousand years from now, think about it a hundred years from now, and play our role in it. We just don't think that way. And we should. Final thought on this. What we're seeing in Israel would be the case in any culture around the world, Latin American, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central Africa, Western Europe, the United States and Canada, in Eastern countries, wherever it happened, if Christianity grew and started to just act Christianly because there was just a lot of Christians, there will be outsiders that haven't seen what it looks like for Christianity to flourish and they will freak out. It's happening in Israel right now. They'll talk about loss of freedom, fascism, uh, religious fascism. They're, they're going to attack and they're going to flail th- those who just despise all things Christianity. And you, I think you have to love those people, but you also have to acknowledge, I, I kind of want to acknowledge this right now, something, I, something related to what I said earlier. The way we talk about these things does sound insane and it sounds threatening to some people. It's not insane. It's not threatening. But we should be careful about how we discuss them because it's jarring. I mean, if you've been in a culture that's told you for 200 years that there is, that you should keep your religion out of things and you're living in a land that doesn't know that they are living their religion, they just think that their religion is neutral life, it's jarring, scary. We're seeing that in Israel now too with some of the backlash. So it's a good lesson to learn. Uh, and if you want to read more of that, it's at theconversation.com. So how do we get there? We do what Israel did. Have a bunch of kids, adopt a bunch of kids, foster a bunch of kids, teach them Bible things, live live a Bible way, and f- disciple them 
in biblical things. That's how we get there. You're listening to The Corey Truax Show wherever you find podcasts. Speaking of having some standards and enforcing them, over here in the United States, there's a Christian college up in upstate New York that recently made some headlines. I actually have a tangential connection to this college. My first job, well, second job, second job out of college back in 2008 was with a Wesleyan University here in South Carolina. The upstate New York version of that place is a place called Houghton College. It's part of the Wesleyan denomination, Wesleyan Holiness, I think is technical name, very closely related to Methodism. And up at this tiny little college, I don't even think it's a thousand students, they made some headlines because the university made a policy that we don't put pronouns in our bios. That's that, which, by the way, if you're a Christian institution of any sort, you should have that policy. Christian colleges, Christian publishing houses, no matter your denomination, no one should be putting pronouns in bios. It is an acquiescence to an unbiblical worldview. It's not a kindness. It's not a conversation starter. It is giving into a madness that, and I mean a madness. Let's let's stop for a second. I say that word not flippantly. I mean that in the denotative old school way of the word. Some people go mad. They go crazy. They have insane ideas. Their brains get broken. They don't see reality correctly. That's a madness that you can choose that you could choose objective language and turn it subjective. It's a madness that you would be able to choose how someone talks about you when you're not around because it's always third person pronouns. Like I <laughs> kind of think about that at church right now. I walk up talking in a group of three or four people. I look right at you and say to the whole group pointing at you, "He really likes that movie." D- do you mean me? You could just say my name, or you could say you really like that movie. Why are you using that third-person pronoun? I'm right here. So even the idea of pronouns uh, is trying to control other people's language. This is a madness. It's insanity. It's crazy. And every Christian institution should have that rule. So, and they, uh, these two, there's two people. They're, I think they're called resident assistant, not resident assistants, resident coordinators. Basically, they oversee a dorm. They're the, they are and probably more than a a dorm, probably housing. We have the analog position at North Greenville. We just call them something different. And they put the pronouns in their bio. One guy, one girl, and the university let them go. And not because two people are going to be jobless, because I feel for them, but I'm going to say it this way. I'm glad they got fired. That's important for an institution to set standards and then keep the standards. To say to somebody, to an employee who says, well, I don't like that standard, it doesn't make me feel good, and I want to have my own standard. It's important to be able to say to those employees, okay, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. We have a standard. We don't comport ourselves to your feelings. Your feelings aren't important to our standard. If you want to work somewhere that has different standards, you are more than welcome to. Go work somewhere else. But we're not changing our standards for you because you don't like the way it makes you feel or because it makes someone else feel a given thing. I've talked about this a good bit lately. There's this odd... I saw in a, I think it was Forbes, a Forbes article, that current C-suites in the big city. So C-suite is where your, it's the suite, the part of the building where the CEO, the CFO, the COO, the the chief officers have their offices, the C-suite. There was an article there in some of these big city C-suites. They're blown away by how many people, 30 and unders, 
that work for them are showing up at the C-suite or sending emails to the C-suite. Just you know, think I like I like to meet with the CFO, Chief Financial Officer. I like to meet with the COO. Uh, there's like four layers of bureaucracy between you and the top. You're gonna have to do something else. You're not meeting with the CEO. Like, listen, we have an awesome president at the university where I work, and I think he would do it if I wanted to meet with him. But I'm not that presumptuous. Like, I'm not that important. All right, there's a lot of layers in between. But there, millennials and Gen Zers just think they're that important. Apparently, that they can just go get a meeting with very important people. It's this, it is the same mindset. It's saying. The institution has made a rule, but I'm me. I'm important and I don't care about your rule. I'll do whatever I want. And so I have very little else to say about it, but it's it's in the news and I, I, I can be corrected or at least argued with or given other points of view. But I don't think it's a kindness to put pronouns in a bio. It's, it's one thing if you're having a personal one-to-one relationship with someone who is suffering from a disease and a delusion of the mind and how you'll address them when they're around. Uh, but it is a good thing to have a policy that we don't acquiesce to the culture and put pronouns in signature lines and emails. And two, it is a good thing to make example of folks that you don't get to change the institution because of your feelings. The institution should change you. I've been saying that for a long time now. And think, of, uh, think I've said it too much, and maybe you have learned the lesson. Then let's do this one. You are listening to the Core Track Show wherever you find podcasts. Glad to have you. At least two more stories. One of them is going to be a little bit lengthier. I'll do this one because it's it's the shorter one, and then we'll spend some time on the last story. The headline in the New York Times was telling. The it goes starts with a question mark or question uh, starts with a interrogative sentence. Interested in polyamory? Check out these places. Well. Actually, no, I'm not interested in polyamory because I'm a normal person. I'm not, not a, uh, I was about to say something mean. It's because I love Jesus. That's why I'm not interested in polyamory. And you'll get a whole story here of groups of people. There's one in Massachusetts where there's just very open to couples of various arrangements where you've... It's uh, Guys, it's a lot of weirdo. It's a lot of weird stuff. Right? So you can go read the story if you want to. But it's anything but a man and a woman being married and living together. It's going to be all kinds of other arrangements. I come back to this point a lot, but I have to. I remember the late 90s and early 2000s when we were having the homosexual marriage debates. People like me kept saying, if we separate... The, the concept that male-female married relationships, sexual relationships in marriage between one man and one woman, if we start acting like that's not uniquely good, you will get all kinds of insanity. You'll get polyamory getting pushed and people ha- having multiple married partners. So not just polyamory, but polygamy. Yeah, we're telling you, there's going to be scientific advancement where three people want to have a baby together and they're going to start splicing genes together to make it happen. Yeah, we're, we're telling you, if you do this one, what's coming within a couple decades is people saying that attraction to minors is totally normal. And if you haven't seen that, they're the maps, minor attracted persons. Yeah, we're saying you're, you're going to open a, a Pandora's box here of, 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 all, of all kinds of sexual deviancy. 
And everyone said back to us, that's called a slippery slope argument. And technically it is. It is technically a slippery slope argument. We are saying if you do one, it'll lead to another, and we couldn't prove it. So it's called a slippery slope argument, technically a logical fallacy, and we were all the way totally right every time. Because, of course, sin does that. Sin always wants more. Let me, let me apply that to us real quickly. Because, listen, the, the world is sick. It is sin sick. We see that in the story of places to practice polyamory. But we should also take heed. Sin is never satisfied. It always wants more. So, sir, what you're looking at on your phone may not technically be pornography, but it is so close that the next thing you do is going to actually be pornography. Madam, sir, the, the, the little suggestive jokes here and there to that person at the office or that you have an open direct message line with, those don't stay just suggestive jokes. The times during the week where, or maybe it's once a month, you just have a little too much to drink, that becomes a couple nights during the month, and that becomes every weekend, and that becomes more. Sin's never satisfied. We, we've seen that in the sexual deviancy and degradation of a culture that we're in. It can also happen to us personally. And so let me encourage this, where sin just starts to pop up, kill it right there. Because, man, its uh, its magnification power is incredible. Okay, those are th- the things that are more directly morality, ethics, and biblical thinking. I mean, all things are biblical thinking, but I do want to spend some time in political season because primary season has begun, and so that's how we will finish the show today. I'll start with debt ceiling talks. The I'll try to keep this in biblical worldview land. This is a... If you didn't, here's the facts. The United States has a unique thing called a debt ceiling where we can't borrow more money until we, by borrow more money, really sell our own bonds is what we're doing without statutory authority. So Congress has to say, yes, you're allowed to borrow more. Then the Treasury can go out and sell bonds. We get, we raise the money to pay what we need to pay. Over the last 15, 20 years, the party on the right, the Republicans, have used that occasion somewhat regularly to try to get concessions of spending, because we have a giant spending problem. In the United States, we spend way too much money. And the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, seems to have done a pretty good job here, got some concessions. Where When I'm talking to you right now, those concessions are not clear, but uh, it's good to get some, cut some spending. It's hard, it's hard to believe that that's not a universal position. But there are people who think that we need to spend more than we do. We, we are a... We're not a country that doesn't tax enough. We're a country that spends too much on stupid and frivolous things. The one thing I wanted to highlight is McCarthy did a pretty good job of choosing things that are overwhelmingly popular to want to cut. Even polling shows, even amongst Democratic voters. For example, it is hard to believe that there are people who oppose work requirements to get certain forms of welfare for able-bodied childless people. Think about how speci- think about how specific that is. Right now, you can be an able-bodied person, let's go between the ages of 30 and 65, 
have no children. No one's depending on you. You have no mitigating circumstance that means you can't work because if that were the case, you could get on disability. So it means you can't be on disability. And you're a person who's not working, but you want Medicaid. You want the rest of us to pay for your health insurance. You're a healthy 35-year-old man with no kids. You're a healthy 30-year-old woman with no kids. And you're, you want Medicaid, but you don't want to work. I'm, I have a feeling, left to right, that's offensive to us all. Because we work so dang hard. And if you look at a pay stub, if any of you look at your pay stub, here, just pick, pick one recently. Look, look at how much your money gets evaporates. It just goes away. It will frustrate you to know someone your age, just as healthy as you, with no kids to take care of, wants your help paying for Medicaid while they're not working. That is an insanely popular proposal. Because, sure, there's other hard situations where someone says, well, of course we should help this woman pay for her Medicaid She's got a kid, two kids, three kids she's trying to take care of. She's not working right now, uh, but we don't want her to, to drop out of Medicaid. Got it. Cool. Understand. Whatever. Um, that's a sad situation, mitigating circumstance, all that. Or for that matter, this person's not able-bodied. They can't work with any regularity. I think what we would say is, okay, fine. Like you, you go through the disability process, establish that's the case, that you can't work. And yeah, okay, Medicaid for that person. What McCarthy has proposed here is, Able-bodied, childless people got to work. And you know what that's called? Biblical worldview. If you can work, if you can earn, it's something you should do. It's dishonoring to the image of God on people not to require that. It is, it's looking at them like animals. Just little pets to take care of instead of humans. Work is dignifying. It is dignifying to take care of yourself. And not to be the, the ward of other people. So one thing that McCarthy did cleverly is choose the right battles. This is something folks on the right have been bad at for a long time. And I could give you examples. I was about to go down a historical rabbit trail that you probably would all be bored of. So let me just say, well done. I'm glad they picked what they picked. They're going to get some decent concessions. I would just finish here on debt. <coughs> Our debt level is too high. And that it does have implications for your kids, your grandkids. It's something we have to get control of. It's not an esoteric or abstract problem. It puts pressure on our. It it does put pressure on our budget. So let's let's say the United States is around for hundreds of years. If our, oh, oh, let's take this to your household. Let's say you have a mortgage, and then the second highest line on your budget of the second highest item on your budget is interest payments on your credit cards. I mean, that's going to be a real problem when you need a home repair, when something goes wrong with your car, because you're going to hit your own debt limit too. I mean, every month, that if you've got tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt, every month you're making another major purchase just by interest accruing on the card or compounding on the card. You've got to get control of it or you're not going to be able to take care of big things when they happen. Now, families aren't households because, excuse me, families aren't countries because countries can issue bonds, they can manipulate currency, you know, we can't. So the analogy is not perfect. But we are coming to a situation where our largest line item, Social Security, then Medicare, 
and then it's just the interest on the debt that we have. We have to bring the ratio down. Uh, let me caution you, though, that not a terrible thing. There's a good role for debt, both in normal people's lives and in governments. It's just too high right now by a long way, and the ratio needs to go down. All right, final thing for today. I'm not going to do a lot of it, but it's it's primary season. But we're going to check in from time to time, and this week is a good week to check in because I think the race really just started for uh, Republicans who will try to unseat President Biden. Uh, let me always give the caveat, this doesn't matter as much as the news makes you think it does. Your life won't be, your day-to-day life largely won't be affected by the outcome of whatever happens next November. There's, it, it's a, all things are important. All things have weight. I'm just saying this one gets outsized weight. I, I was interested this week because, one, Tim Scott joined the race, which for all, all the other you know, outcomes, you know, he's kind of irrelevant in the race. But isn't it kind of cool that in the city, Charleston, where the Civil War began, the descendants of slaves, Tim Scott can directly trace his lineage to slaves. In the city where the Civil War began, began a black man, a descendant of slaves, elected by the very conservative people in his state as a senator, announced a run for president of the United States. He's almost definitely going to be someone's vice presidential candidate or end up in the cabinet somewhere of the next administration, if it's a Republican administration. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool that that's the case in just in less than 200 years. That's, it's kind of a... It's, it's something to celebrate. But then also the, the big news was the only person who does seem to have any chance at keeping the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, from becoming the nominee... The, the person who seems to have any chance is Ron DeSantis. He got in the race, and he has raised a ton of money. He's, I, I don't know how good his chances are, but if anyone has a chance, it's him. I just want to toss out a video that he put out because, one, it was my prediction, my prediction a long time ago of what the, the tactic would be. I was right. His, his, his attack angle on, on Trump, and I think it's the only one that really can be effective because there's still a lot of rancor around this. So uh, this is a Ron DeSantis Super PAC ad they put out to attack president uh, the former President Trump, and you're going to hear him talking about his pandemic response. Let me pl- It's a minute and a half. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but let me give you a flavor of it. We did the right thing. We closed the country down. Could have kept it open, and I could have done what some countries are doing. I had to shut it down, and we did the right thing. I thought of keeping it open. And we did just the right thing. We closed it down. And a group of very smart people walk in and say, sir, we have to close it. And we did the right thing. They can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. Even the Democrats aren't blaming me for that. We had to close it up. Some people wish we never closed it down. We did the right thing. We closed it. It's a decision for the president of the United States. We did the right thing. We had to close it up. Because nobody's ever heard of closing down a country, let alone the United States of America. We had to turn off the airlines. We had to turn off everything. And we did the right thing. A lot of people have thought. Right, so you get the the attack angle. You're going to get, I've heard DeSantis do it with interviews. He specifically starts talking about Fauci. I don't, So I, I think I'm the most conservative person I know. There are some weird things about my kindred that I don't get. Like, I, I'm angry about the pandemic response. I think it was the exact wrong thing. I don't understand 
exactly the hatred of Anthony Fauci. I don't quite get it, but it's there. It's visceral. There are Republican voters who hate his guts. And it is a fairly clever attack line to come to microphones and say, you empowered Fauci. I know that's what I, I would do if I were the DeSantis team. I would say it's time to get on a debate stage. And if Trump's there or not, and I have, I have a sneaking suspicion Trump's never going to show up for a debate because he, know he, he knows he doesn't have to. He's, he's ahead that far. But get up on a debate stage and say, this is the failure of Donald Trump. When the pressure was on, he looked at Anthony Fauci and he said, you're in charge. We're going to do whatever you say. He looked at Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks and whatever you want, we're going to do. That will be effective. I don't know if it's, an, if it's enough, but it is effective because there are people who love Trump, who really did hate Fauci and Burks. And then there's people just like me, generally, who I, I may not have the antipathy and like rage that other people do, but I, it was, I think, the worst thing governments did. The worst thing we did was how we responded to a virus that seemed to be very emotional and uh, not data-driven. Uh, violative of a great deal of, of freedom and just general general principles that we hold dear, I think that's an attack angle that's going to work. Uh, just current prediction, I think um, usually the most evangelical person wins Iowa. I think that person is going to be, I think Tim Scott is the one who has the most evangelical credentials. But this just feels like a two-man race. And if, if it were normal, I would say Tim Scott's going to win Iowa. I think he's just the same way that Rick Santorum did in 08 and then went away. Sorry, Mike Huckabee did in 08. Rick Santorum did in 2012. And Ted Cruz did in 2016. The most evangelical always wins that state. But it, this feels like a two-person race. And I could see it being DeSantis wins Iowa. Trump wins New Hampshire. And then, like it was in previous years, who comes down here in South Carolina and wins? I'm telling you right now, this, this audience, you're going to have a significant role in this process. That's, I gotta go. There's all, all that's a, enough news for the week, enough commentary. I have some other things I want to do. I hope I can come back later in the week. It is Memorial Day weekend, so maybe I can do some some stuff on Monday. I'm grateful that you listen. If you have feedback, Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. It's easy to do. And I hope that you will. I'll be back some point here in the near future with more commentary that I hope is helpful to you. Until then, everybody, peace and love.